Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a special two-part conversation with Mark Reniker, MD, and Michael Lerner as they discuss medical advocacy for people with cancer and other serious conditions. This conversation is co-presented with Healing Circles. This is part one. Mark Reniker, welcome to Healing Circles and the New School. Thank you. Mark, you and I were trying to figure out how far back we go in this work, but it's either the late 80s or the early 90s, right? Actually, I remember meeting you at UCSF. I I had just published the third edition of a textbook I'd written called Understanding Cancer. And I can't remember if I followed you or came before you in some lecture format. And then we started talking after that. Mm-hmm. And um, I have to say that in my humble view of the world, that you're one of the more remarkable human beings I know. You are a board-certified, university-affiliated family physician with training in uh, many fields of medicine, but expertise in cancer, inner-city medicine, preventive medicine, behavioral medicine, geriatrics, sports medicine, consultative medicine, integrative medicine. And your field, in some sense, which you, I think, kind of invented, is the field of clinical advocacy. Yeah, and uh, it didn't have a name for the longest time. Right. And tried on various names. Um, Advocacy really is the in the realm of uh, sort of the legal world, really. And even the ideas of patient advocacy never quite described the work. And uh, clinical advocacy never quite stuck, really, other than it's the idea of clinicians, any kind of health professional working with patients, as it were, who are taking up an advocacy role with patients. Um, and the, probably the more Mm, translatable term is medical advocacy, though, I, I would say. Mm-hmm. Just for the idea that we're doing advocacy work around matters uh, in the field of medicine. And um, when we started a course recently uh, for medical students at UCSF, we just called it advocacy medicine. My memory is that you once described what you do for a client as what any physician would do for a family member if a life-threatening illness struck close to home. Yeah, that's it. When I try to describe the work that I do to fellow physicians, it just draws a blank face. And then I finally say, okay, think about when someone in your family or someone really close to you has a life-threatening illness. It's all the extra things that you would do to help them. So it's the actually getting the key documents, the records, the pathology report, the scan reports. It's maybe following up and even calling the radiologist to talk about what's in the scan, sort of reading between the lines. It's making sort of sure that you've looked at the current medical literature on that problem. Um, And then even following up by phone call or emails with key individuals around the country who are sort of at the cutting edge of working with that that type of disease. 
And it's really making sure that all of that is done, just almost so you can live with yourself, if nothing else. But, um, and I think when I say that to fellow physicians, they get it. So. I have a friend who was recently diagnosed with ALS, and I suggested to him and his partner that what they needed was a team of teams. They needed a team on medical treatments. They needed a team on social support. They needed a team to figure out the finances of this. And I'm part of the medical team, and this person is reasonably very well networked. into. And just watching the effort of a group of sophisticated physicians and people deeply connected, non-physicians, sort of like me, to see what we could figure out for this guy with ALS is exactly what you're talking about, you know? Right. Uh, one of our colleagues, Suki Miller, wrote a book called Share the Care mm-hmm. that was mainly around all the care issues, let's right. say, for someone with a, like an advanced neurodegenerative disease like ALS. Um, some of these other issues of uh, sort of really creating <clears throat> um, a virtual team, if you will, even even if you're not all there working with the patient, but to really bring all possible expertise to problem solving, but also being proactive mm-hmm. so that you're preventing problems. Um, that, as you're suggesting, uh, does take a certain sort of skill of coordination, of team building, um, of somehow avoiding the problem, which often happens, of sort of too many chefs in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. That's always the trickiest thing I've seen. The other thing I, I'll, I'll say that I've seen, I've done a number of these sort of high-profile cases, very famous people, as it were, and what they automatically want to do, their way of problem solving is to assemble a blue ribbon committee of mm-hmm. <clears throat> the chairman of this, the, the head of this medical school, then all these top people from around the country. And then we have these phone meetings. And what you find actually is that it's utterly stultifying mm-hmm. because they really don't want to stick their neck out mm-hmm. to be known as someone who would do something sort of, sort of seat of the pants, not really evidence-based, mm-hmm. um, and much as I might try to explain that to a person who's normally used to sort of a VIP approach, mm-hmm. they don't get it, no, but rarely. Absolutely, and, and, and the secret is that chairs of department are often not the best people to, right. uh, to take care of your care. You and I may know that, but yeah. really the, anybody who would accept that honor of being the chair mm-hmm. Um, it's often it's just a lot of administrative crap. Well, you also have to be very political to be the chair. Well, you know. but it's just putting up with yeah. dealing with lots of, of people's egos and trying to calm people down. And um, anybody would know anything would know that that's not a great way to get original work done. Right, exactly. So if uh, you gave a, a talk, the Jennifer Altman Foundation lecture, actually in 1992 here, called No Stone Unturned, Seeking Optimal Cancer Care. And you've kind of updated that for this conversation. How would you approach a kind of an overview of uh, uh, advocacy oncology, just sort of outlining it for us? Uh, For one, I would start with, for whatever reason, cancer 
has always been galvanizing um, for the public, for obviously for the person who has the cancer, for people around them, um, far more so than, say, heart disease mm-hmm. or, or neurological disease. And uh, I began to see this back when I was a pre-med student at UC Santa Cruz in the early 70s. And someone who I came to know quite well, but a student had this idea to have like evening lectures by cancer specialists. And it was a course called The Biology of Cancer. And um, so he would have sort of top people from sort of biological, clinical, psychosocial world. And there'd be 500 people coming every night. Um, And I began to work with him in sort of designing curriculum and spreading this course, as it were, it was called The Biology of Cancer, spreading it around to different colleges um, in the state. And we would experiment sometimes, but like we tried offering a course on, on the biology of heart disease. Like five people showed up. <laughs> you know, even though a far more, I mean, prevalent, deadly disease and so forth. Um, for myself, I can just say that what I've learned as to oncology is uh, that when cancer appears, uh, I can't say I ever was interested in oncology, really, um, but I've seen that cancer, um, sort of, for people, they just put aside all the nonsense, all the bullshit, and it just becomes a beeline, literally a beeline into their consciousness. And um, I have marveled again and again and again to see how an experience with this disease brings about transformation. Uh, and I, and I, that utterly fascinates me. Um, it's an iconic disease. There's certain diseases that get that status. HIV got that status. You know, cancer got that status. I think ALS gets that. There's certain diseases that people wake up in a different way, even though there are other equally, you know, life-threatening illnesses that don't have that iconic function somehow. Um, When I was then at Santa Cruz, um, I got a call from my father, who, he's a psychiatrist, psychoanalyst, telling me that he had cancer. And, uh, And it was a salivary gland tumor, big thing growing here on the side of his face. And, uh, he he was refusing to have treatment. And the treatment would be to remove this, and the surgeons he'd seen all said, well, we'll have to sacrifice the facial nerve, which goes through the salivary gland here, so that half his face wouldn't work. And as he said, as a psychotherapist, he'd be schmeist, was the word he used. Um, You know, who'd want to see a therapist sitting there with half his face drooping? Uh, It would... And he just, I think it was his way of just saying, no, no, that isn't what I want to do. And, and I said, well, gee, Dad, what are you, you going to do then? And uh, he said, well, you know, my old friend Larry LaShawn, they were in the Army together. Mm-hmm. Um, I called him, and he has this friend at the Travis Air Force Base, and he has this a guy named Simonton, and he has this idea that you sort of visualize your white blood cells going after your tumor, 
And that's what I'm going to do. And I said, Dad, I, I'm maybe going to drop out for the quarter and come down and be with you. Mm-hmm. I, I said, you kind of scare me what you're talking about. I mean, it doesn't make sense to me. Mm-hmm. And I was like really very, I'm going to say conventionally minded of, you know, gee, you've got a cancer, you should have surgery. Um, I said, how do you know for sure it's cancer? He said, it wasn't biopsy. And he said, well, they won't biopsy it because it'll spread it. And the only way they would do the biopsy is to actually remove the whole thing. And, and so I thought, oh, this is kind of interesting. So what I ended up doing instead of dropping out was to, um, I had good old UC Santa Cruz, I could do independent studies in salivary gland cancer. Mm-hmm. And so I would go down to UCLA Medical Library and just read everything there was <clears throat> and sort of force myself to try to come up to speed on this um, I very quickly realized I knew a lot more than my father <laughs> uh, on this matter. And um, and I went through the process with him, including sort of going and investigating at the time, which was a very sort of exciting uh, new therapy of Laetro down in Tijuana. Um, and saw firsthand this dichotomy of sort of traditional allopathic medicine versus sort of alternative medicine at the time, of which Simonton's work would have to have been included in that. So my dad, uh, you got to love him, he, uh, he learned this visualization method, and he set about with records and a little caliper he built to measure the diameter of his swollen uh, salivary gland. And he did it with, with great determination, and he was so excited, we would talk all the time, that the tumor just began to shrink and shrink and shrink. And his idea was if it could even just be a lot smaller, then they could do the surgery and save the nerve. And after about eight months or so, it had shrunk about 75%. Wow. Um, and he found a surgeon who was willing to agree to remove the salivary and leave the facial nerve, even if the facial nerve looked involved. Um, and had the surgery, and it was removed, and uh, went find the operation. But it, interestingly, the pathology was a kind of mixed malignant benign tumor. Mm. So we don't know what it was before, but that was my first exposure to sort of the mind-body mm. therapy idea. And that, that really got my attention. Uh, and the other part of that experience, and it relates to this advocacy idea, is... Around oncology, what I discovered was that the American Cancer Society, the National Cancer Institute, the information that they would make available to people was pathetic. It was just sort of white bread nonsense for the most part. It didn't really have all the dimensions that were um, obvious. And also the information that I was finding um, work readily being done in any number of great scientific institutions. So that was when I began to sort of conjure this idea of a people's guide to cancer, kind of a, you know, how to fix the Volkswagen by John Muir equivalent in oncology. And that's what ultimately led to my sort of writing and editing these books that came to be How I Met You. Kind of a big dummy's guide to cancer therapy. And all this I did, all this I did actually before medical school and even in the first year or two of medical school. Mm -hmm. 
And when I got to UC San Francisco in the School of Medicine, I'd been doing a lot of work already with UCLA Cancer Center. And that was a real eye-opener in this advocacy realm because <clears throat> UCSF was a very vertical structure, a lot of very unhappy people, to my perspective. So ego-driven. And UCLA was a much more horizontal structure and people really collaborative and teams. And, uh, and correspondingly, the, the cancer medicine education at UCSF I just thought it was awful. So I actually started a course on cancer medicine, uh, similar to the undergraduate course. But again, it was bringing in these people from around the country who would speak on sort of the cutting edge in the cancer field. And so through all this, I came to see dramatically the geographical differences of even from one end of the state to the other in terms of expertise, in terms of treatments, um, but it really extends throughout the country that it was almost as if every, like the old West where every town has its own sheriff with their own laws. And patients would have no idea short of actually realizing the, the need to go to these other places or even how to find them or pick them. And then on top of that, then there are these clinical trials out there and um, patients, again, are really at a disadvantage in even being able to have a clue what the clinical trial is about. They're so technical in how they're written about. And most physicians, oncologists, give so little help to patients, particularly if the clinical trial is elsewhere. I, I, I really, I can't think of maybe one or two times I've ever seen say, a patient from UCSF being referred anywhere outside of UCSF for a clinical trial. It almost never happens. Most of all, not to Stanford. I mean, this is, <laughs> and vice versa. It's, it's um, one's not aware of really how much uh, need there is just to see the, ma the map. Mm -hmm. And one of your points about the map which we were just talking about before we began, is that what's called integrative medicine, uh, complementary medicine, tends to create its own universe, which is separate from mainstream medicine. And therefore, not only do different centers in different oncology centers not refer outside, and there are, there are all these different places where people don't get referred, but also integrative medicine doesn't really integrate. No. And so people are in this situation where they go to an oncologist, to say an academic oncologist, who's likely to only refer within his institution, uh, and they go to an integrative person, and there's not a lot of communication between those worlds either. And I think what that reflects, and this is again... I think one of the most frustrating and difficult things for patients is that the mainstream doc or the integrative doc, they actually know very little about what each the other person does. Mm -hmm. uh, they have different ideas about what healing is. They have different language, different mm -hmm. types of tests that they do. Mm -hmm. um, if you remember, I've 
put on this salon at my office uh, a few years back, and you came to on the I was one of your guinea pigs. Yeah, yeah, you were. Yeah. And the you, idea you was my case. I wanted to know yeah. why integrative medicine wasn't happening, mm-hmm. and that was the gauntlet I threw down mm-hmm. because what each each there wasn't this mixing that everybody would hope, and it was still left to patients to go around and find these practitioners themselves and try to assemble this team, this, and it would, they wouldn't integrate. I mean, it's just so interesting. And um, I think that's still a huge problem. And, and it, I think that's actually emblematic of, uh, again, this issue of the narrowness, even in something that sounds so grand as integrative, most of the integrative medicine docs I know don't really have a good handle on what I would call sort of traditional medicine, allopathic medicine. I mean, they, of, of really knowing it as well as they know, say, the functional medicine or the, the integrative side. So I want to bring in a third dimension here to integrative and, and mainstream medicine, which is your life as a surfer. Um, and... Um, this is not a trivial matter. There was a two-part wonderful um, uh, article, two articles on you in the New Yorker uh, magazine um, on your, your life as a surfer. And um, I actually uh, I want to just read a little bit from this. Um, it's the start of the first one. It's... Uh, uh, Wise Surfboards, the only surf shop in San Francisco, is a bright, high-ceiling place. Um, and uh, Bob Wise, the proprietor, was talking to a small group of local surfers when I stopped Ben. Quote, so Doc, that's what people call Mark Renneker in the surfing world, who can see the surf from his window, the house that he and Jessica share near, near Ocean Beach, calls me up and says, come on, let's go out, Wise said. So I keep asking him, but how is it? And he goes, it's interesting. So I go over there and we go out and it's just totally terrible. So Doc says, what did you expect? Turns out when Doc says it's interesting, it means that it's worse than terrible. (laughs) Wise was talking about Mark Renneker, a family practice physician and surfer who lives in the Sunset District. Uh, and, And so were two young guys I overheard a few days later at a windy overlook on the south side of the Golden Gate. We were watching the surf break against the base of the long black cliff. The spot down there is called Dead Man's, and the tide was still too high for surfing when one of them pointed north and howled. Across the gate, which is a magnificent stretch of water running from the Pacific into the bay, giant waves were breaking in a shipping hazard known as the Potato Patch. Although they were several miles from where we stood and wind-ripped and horribly confused, the waves had, because they were so big, the three-dimensionality of waves seen much closer. Hey, give me your binoculars, says one of the guys. Doc's probably out there. Actually, Mark was working that afternoon at an inner-city clinic in San Francisco, but the kids on the cliff were not misinformed. Mark had tried to surf the potato patch, an idea so far-fetched and scary that those who knew the area but had not talked to witnesses invariably refused to believe it. Since these guys were not San Francisco surfers, of whom there were only a few dozen, their remarks meant that Mark's notoriety was no longer confined to the city. So um, 
you're not only a surfer, but not only known as Doc, but sometimes as Doc Hazard. And, um, and your surfing life, I have to tell you, interests me at least as much as your life as a, a physician. When you came out here, when we were doing the Symington Foundation conferences on new directions in cancer care, you always brought your surfboard. And you taught, you, you entrained Keith Block, the integrative oncologist who hadn't been doing much surfing recently, and the two of you started going out. Mm-hmm. And later, you went down near the South Pole with Keith and surfed mm-hmm. off the ice there. I mean, you're, you're, you surf Maverick, uh, you know, these 40-foot waves are not unknown to you. And so I just, I provide this as a sense of context that, that somehow, to me at least, the way you practice medicine and your approach to surfing are somehow integrated. But I'd love to ask you to say how it looks to you. Where does surfing fit into it from your perspective? I think they're almost one and the same uh, in that... I think of the work that I do as the big wave equivalent in the field of medicine. Mm-hmm. And it's a matter of sort of exploring really difficult, complex places mm-hmm. uh, that are utterly challenging. Um, and where there are few, few who have treaded uh, and equally exhilarating mm-hmm. um, to to go out and really big surf. You know, all your senses are completely firing mm-hmm. and just alive, and you're trying to make sense of incredible complexity. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes it comes down to literally just catching one wave. And you might spend all afternoon trying to figure out how to do that. Mm-hmm. And in this work, it's uh, it's about just helping one patient. I mean, one at a time. But I take very few, on, take on very few new cases. Maybe I do about, start one new case a week is all. Because the work is so time intensive. Um, and I've sort of, to play with the sea analogy, I've learned you know, in the lifeboat, as it were, of what I have time and can do, there's only room for so many people. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you know, it sinks the boat. And so surfing has been what gives me balance to do this work. Mm-hmm. Um, I've learned that sometimes the best thinking that I do on a case doesn't happen when I'm writing away on the computer or answering emails or something or reviewing records even. It'll happen while I'm out surfing. Mm-hmm. It's, the solution appears. The, mm-hmm. the direction the case needs to go mm-hmm. um, makes itself evident. And um, the other thing about the surfing part of it is that, this may sound corny, but it honors the patients I'm working with who if they could be so well and healthy to get out there doing something like that, this is why they're going to such lengths 
and taking all these therapies that are so difficult to have the chance to do that. So the promise to myself is, fortunately for, uh, or unfortunately, but the, there aren't that many big days. There aren't, big surf is a rare thing. You know, it only happens part of the year. It may happen once, twice, three times a month. Um, so basically I'm on call for the swells and, uh, and I, and most of my patients know this as it were. And if the surf's good, you cancel. Well, and, 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 you know, I'll say, or I'll, I'll tell, uh, interesting you read that because mm-hmm. Bob Wise's wife, Patricia Wise has mm-hmm. been my office manager since I started the practice uh-huh. and Bob Wise was the one, I know nothing about business or anything. So when I thought to start this practice, it was Bob Wise who I went to and said, well, I'm thinking of, and, you know, he sort of did the numbers or did whatever, what it would cost to rent a place to, and hire someone. And he says, by the way, you should hire my wife. <laughs> and she still works for me 25 years later. But um, See, to I, me, I've, I've asked yeah. uh, Patricia, I say, look, you know, you, if, if the person wants to know why we're having to reschedule, just tell them something came up. <laughs> And, and they'll say, the surf? And then she'll say, yes. And they say, oh, boy, that's great. They're really happy about that. So it works. Good. It works. And the other thing is, it, it works, too, just to be myself and mm-hmm. to, as it were, be completely out of the closet, you know, as a hardcore surfer. You're listening to part one of a two-part conversation with Mark Renneker, MD, and Michael Lerner. So the way you do your practice, I mean, you, you don't have a website. Uh, you don't advertise in any way. People find you by word of mouth. Um, describe actually how it works, because you don't see the people in general. So describe how your, your practice actually works. Now, actually, Michael, you're forgetting the start of the story, which okay. was uh, when I had this idea to start mm-hmm. this practice was in 1988. Mm-hmm. There was a big south swell. I was, it was midnight. I was driving down to Big Sur to sort of meet the swell at this one spot beneath the cliff. And I found myself driving along thinking about this case mm-hmm. that I had been working with that week. At the time, I was doing cancer screening, and it was a complex prostate case. And I just wasn't able to get the urologist to see this guy and take it seriously. And I was trying to think up ways to sort of fool the urologist into... <laughs> seeing this guy and really doing what he needs to do. And so I had this idea. There was a TV show on at the time called The Equalizer. And, uh, you know, this this guy in a black leather jacket and his black Jaguar with a big black gun, you know, was available to help people. And he had an ad in the paper that said, need help, call The Equalizer. And then he would take these cases and go help them. And usually dealt with, you know, mobsters or whatever. So I had the idea that I would be the medical equalizer. And I put an ad in the San Francisco Chronicle. This is my one ad. It ran for a week and it was an experiment. And it was to see how many people out there might be so desperate as to answer such an ad. But the ad read, trapped in a medical nightmare and need help, call the medical equalizer. With a phone number. I got all these calls. And these were legitimate 
calls. I mean, real problems. People who had hit the wall so many times in the medical system and had literally given up. This was what the experiment was. The other thing that came about was that a number of the calls were actually from out of state. And where you have to imagine, how, I hate to say it, how desperate these folks were, the ad was in the announcement section of the classified, and it was right beneath the quickie divorce ad and above an ad that was recruiting people who could chirp like a cricket and play the pots and pans. It was some musical group or something. So then that these people were reading this from across the country and uh, would still call and really seriously wanted me to take their case. So since then, literally, uh, I haven't advertised as it were, and I've never not had a full-time load of patients. Um, and it's always been through word of mouth. And actually, one of the great things about Commonweal really has been when patients come to me, say, through Commonweal, it, I hate to say this, but it's a screening process almost mm -hmm. where they get it. Mm -hmm. It isn't, I mean, every person wants, you know, help, as it were, and to survive and, 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 and so on. But <clears throat> there's still, um, some folks sort of need to come to some realization that they have to step outside of the box to get there. And most people who would come to Commonweal have realized that. Mm -hmm. That's true. And uh, we describe, I describe what you do. Uh, and so they have some framework for understanding it. So let's then go to, so somebody hears about you and they call and uh, they're told to send their medical records, right? Actually not. Okay, how does uh, it work? So, sorry. Uh, yeah. I have them fill out a little questionnaire, but okay. the questionnaire is designed to, uh, and the write-up that we send them is designed to actually try to turn them away mm -hmm. and give them ideas for things to do on their own mm -hmm. that they wouldn't need my help. Mm -hmm. um, and then, though, if they still uh, do feel I could be helpful to them, then mm -hmm. they would answer various questions. But it has to do with uh, sort of their satisfaction with their different doctors or... Uh, and I, it also has to do with what they really want to change, mm -hmm. uh, obviously to get well, but um, what their ideas are, really. Mm -hmm. And what I'm looking for are, um, I think, really their ability to see them, their own situation, their ability to describe it. Um, versus a person who often people, when they're just diagnosed, are in shock and uh, they're just wanting to get everything they can out there. And I don't actually find my help as useful then because mm -hmm. they're just bombarded with information and ideas and also just trying to get their feet on the ground. But once someone has kind of been in it for a while and uh, realizes some of the things that um, loom ahead of them, and they realize the need for help, uh, and then they're not getting that help, say, from their institution or doctors or whatever, um, and they're frustrated by that, then that's when the advocacy piece becomes obvious of what help they could receive to really uh, broaden 
their whole treatment portfolio. And, and um, so those are the patients that I'm actually looking for. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, the, the issue of the records is that I don't actually want to be biased by the records and the physicians that they've seen ways of describing or looking at the case. Um, you know, about half the cases I do aren't cancer at all, for instance. Um, I do a lot of cases of where there isn't a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Just trying to figure out what what has befell this patient. And, um, you know, in the truest way in which I was trained, it was that, you know, each physician takes the rec- takes the history themselves and doesn't just sort of read what was done before and just assume that's all accurate. Uh, this write-up that I've given you, um, and I would like to sort of begin to walk through a little bit of it, it makes the point that medical records are notoriously inaccurate. And um, in this era now of electronic medical records, it's become worse than ever. Mm-hmm. Because what happens now is there's some sort of boilerplate summary that is written somehow, and then it just gets carried forward, errors included, and the tone of it included. And it now really is a problem because uh, so many times the records, those who are tuned into them, can, there's code really in there of things of sort of making this patient sound like a crank or sort of a complainer or a denier or a you-know-what. And so that really is a problem. The good thing is, finally, that patients, because of HIPAA, because of uh, sort of these new my portal kind of access that more patients have now to their own records, they really can, if if they can screw up the courage to do so, they can see how they're being portrayed. They can see if it's accurate or not. Um, So I, at most, usually only want to see for a cancer-related case, I want to see the pathology report, maybe the most recent scan report, and that's about it. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Just to start the the consultation. I got it. And then I'll decide what records uh, I might need. I see. And I usually try to involve the patient in getting their own records, the family, and actually kind of early on, this is the way I work, assign them homework, which is to basically scrutinize and own these records. And I want people to come up to speed on their case. And I can be sometimes blunt, perhaps, even. And once I've been talking with someone for a while in that first appointment, the observation of of sort of, gee, they got to up their game. I mean, to be able to present themselves to doctors asking for sort of greater services, as it were, or other ideas to be implemented, uh, they have to kind of learn how to do that. Now, these appointments are phone appointments. So, yeah, it's almost all by phone. Yeah. Occasionally, I'll do things in the office. Mm -hmm. uh, And I find, actually, interestingly, it creates an opportunity, I think, for greater intimacy mm-hmm. in that um, there's a formality to sitting across mm-hmm. a desk. And uh, um, I think people are more comfortable sitting at home, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I regularly will 
offer to them to patch in family members from around the country and we'll do sort of conference calls. Mm -hmm. And family always really want to help. And so this is a chance to do that. Um, and so what you normally wouldn't see in a, in a in-person thing is sort of how the family naturally functions. Um, my dad, the psychiatrist, when he, uh, so when I started this practice and he would watch me work, he'd say, oh, I get it. This is, it's actually a lot very similar to when he's an analyst. And if you know, in psychoanalysis, you actually have the cat that are lying down. They're, they're not looking at you. They're looking the other way. And they're sort of trying to get that sort of um, comfort and just sort of the person talking. I think uh, phone allows that. Now, you suggested we start walking through, which I'd yeah. like to do. Uh, and I think everybody has a copy of this mm -hmm. so you can follow along. It starts on page three, uh, part one, a content for advocacy oncology. So what's the most efficient way for you to do this? Well, I think, when, when do you want let's, to... Let's, let's go for a, a, another... Uh, uh, let's go for a while and see how, okay. how we do here. All right. Yeah. So, what I wrote here, starting on page three, <clears throat> are what I would call tools. And this would be sort of a body of information of where oncology is now and I don't expect everyone here to sort of come up to speed literally on all of this but I do think that those who would want to help or work in an advocacy way with others uh, dealing with cancer um, this is the core of it so as I've just said um, medical records are often erroneous, um, sometimes in serious ways. So I just recommend not assuming that your records are complete. Um, and the only way you would know that would be to get your full set of records. The key thing that I try to do in a case is actually overturn the diagnosis. And I'll do this rigorously. And I want to see if the pathology report fits what's maybe transpired. So many of the cases I deal with are people who were diagnosed months or years before even. And sometimes, <clears throat> in hindsight, it becomes evident that the diagnosis is in question. Because, as it were, the cancer didn't behave as it typically would. Or more importantly the treatments that would normally work for that diagnosis, that cancer, haven't worked, which right away suggests that maybe the diagnosis was wrong. And that's not so far-fetched, because when Susan Braun was the executive director here, and as you know, she headed Cohen for the Cure and now heads the V Foundation for Cancer Research and one of the foremost oncology leaders in the country, and one of the things I learned from her was that the uh, interpretation of the pathology report was one of the weak links in cancer medicine. And in fact, at many cancer centers, there's a high error rate. Yeah. And, and so when yeah. you say overturn the diagnosis, it's not far-fetched at all, because given that there's a high error rate and that that's a weak link, uh, it's a very real possibility that a significant number of people 
have been misdiagnosed and are being treated for something that they do not, in fact, have. Right. So I've done cases where a person's had a bone marrow transplant right. for something that wasn't cancer. Right. Um, uh, cases where a person's been in hospice for months already mm-hmm. when they didn't have cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, and the things that it can turn out to be, just to sort of in perspective, uh, you can sometimes have um, a cancer and then a second cancer. And the second cancer then, it's a second primary. That's what's being seen as the metastasis from the first cancer. Mm-hmm. So the person doesn't have metastatic cancer at all. They actually just have two separate primary cancers, mm-hmm. both of which you, know, you might even have to treat differently. Um, there's an epidemic of uh, an unusual type of cancer that can masquerade as other cancers, and these are called neuroendocrine tumors. Mm-hmm. And by default, I've had to become sort of a quasi-expert in these tumors because most oncologists, for whatever reason, seem to know so little about them or actually have interest in them. But it really takes a rigorous uh, analysis of the pathology report more so actually getting the tumor specimens and testing them for whole different uh, parameters that would rule in this idea of a neuroendocrine tumor. Often the question comes up, how to do that? And just, again, pointers that are in here. Uh, it's almost impossible within the same institution to get a true independent second opinion of, a path- of the pathology. So you, they have a lot invested in having stated their opinion, and they will fight you, as it were. But if you, what I do is I'll, I'll research then on this given cancer or the, the thing that isn't quite fitting here, that it might be some, a variation on that cancer or something that it's often thought to be, but it's actually something else. I'll find then in the literature published work um, and look at what individual actually, they go to sleep at night thinking about that particular cancer and how to make that diagnosis. And, mm-hmm. and you can call them, you can email them. They're thrilled to have the chance to look at another such case. And they're happy to receive the slides and to issue a, a report. Um, the key with a second opinion of on the, the pathology is it has to be in writing. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you how often it'll be that there's some verbal report that sort of is usually kind of a rubber stamp of what was the original diagnosis, but a rigorous actual um, report that has legal implications. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what you're looking for. So uh, there isn't a single cancer case really where I don't. Uh, find that getting a formal second opinion on the pathology itself isn't a good idea. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it will go to a second or a third. I remember that course that I was telling you about, I would have this, one of my favorite speakers on on testicular cancer was a guy, a pathologist from University of Colorado, who himself had testicular cancer. And so he sent his slides to five different pathologists, five different opinions. Mm -hmm. 
And he was the one who taught me. He said, look, what you want to look for in picking a pathologist is you don't even want that doctor to have trained with the other doctor. Mm. Not from that same institution, because literally <clears throat> they, it just, it's a hand-me-down set of, of thinking. So that's on the pathology side. The other thing that people are shocked to learn is that really bedrock tests like estrogen receptors, HER2 testing, and breast cancer, there are a lot of false negatives in that testing. False positives, less so, but they can occur. So it turns out in the present understanding of tumors now is there is great heterogeneity in any tumor where it isn't like all the cells in the tumor are the same. So they, you can have HER2 positive parts and then HER2 negative parts. And wildly, there's a geographical heterogeneity. So depending on where you take the cut to look at the material to see or to test, it'll vary based on the part of the tumor that you've looked at. Um, and this is true, by the way, even in the genomic testing going on. And, and absolutely fascinating is in this whole new realm of immuno-oncology and these uh, PD-1, anti-PD-1 therapies, which are incredible. <clears throat> if you have a tumor that's, let's say, a round tumor, and what you're wanting to do is to test to see if this would be a type of tumor that would respond well to one of these anti-PD-1 therapies. And that is that the tumor will be positive for what's called pdl one expression, meaning that the tumor cells will produce a protein that actually can put the person's own lymphocytes to sleep. This is the whole idea. This is what this whole therapy is about, which is... <clears throat> You know, the person's own lymphocytes supposedly are going to recognize the tumor and get rid of it. Well, it turns out that as the lymphocytes approach a tumor to try and get rid of it, just the side of the tumor where the lymphocytes are trying to approach, that side will turn PDL1 positive. Just that little scalloped edge where all the rest will still be negative. So if you're going to do this test as a way to, say, enter into a trial for these new therapies and you have to have pdl one positive expression in the tumor, depending on what angle the tumor was sampled, you will or will not find that it actually is positive. So this is uh, something that is confounding greatly in the field now of um, how do you do these appraisals um, everything right now is about genomic therapy, for instance. And I've written in here about molecular and genomic testing. It's the same problem there. So there are different parts of the tumor, different cells in the tumor that will have completely 180 degree different results in doing genomic testing. So that literally the genes are turned on in one part of the tumor and turned off in another. And again, when you're talking about trying to enter a trial and to profile the tumor, um, the results have to be held in suspicion if they either look positive or negative. And so a lot of the work that I do then is <clears throat> really trying to nail down these very key tests as to how accurate they are. And I don't expect that 
uh, say, a lay advocate or a, a non-physician advocate could do this. But actually, I would tell you that they could. Um, if the starting point is <coughs> Jessica's <coughs> um, grandfather was a famous humorist named Finley Peter Dunn, and he had a character named Mr. Dooley. And Mr. Dooley <coughs> had this line in one of the columns, trust everyone but cut the cards. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to be banking on doing some medical therapy or something on the basis of a single test, it's really important, if everything is hanging on that, to prove that it's right. Yeah. And, and the complexity of doing so remains extraordinary. Right. So, you know, I've written here that sort of the, the most, mm, this genomic revolution is taking place. There's nothing to stop it. Uh, everyone is looking for, it's this magic bullet mm-hmm. mentality still. <clears throat> You're going to find some abnormal gene. There's going to be some biotech company that will invent a drug that targets that gene. And hallelujah, gone. It just isn't working out that way. No, it's not. And, and so what I believe is more relevant is not looking at the genes, but looking at the proteins that the genes are programmed to produce. Mm-hmm. Because every person, for instance, with breast cancer, every person who's BRCA positive, for instance, they don't all develop breast cancer. Mm-hmm. There's a goodly number of folks who will never get breast cancer, even though you would think since that gene is there and turned on, it would manifest breast cancer. Well, there's all these, we were talking about earlier, these epigenetic things that control whether that gene is expressed or not. If the gene is expressed, though, what a gene does is it produces a protein. And you can look for those proteins. So I find that testing to be far more useful. I love this one company at the University of Texas in Houston. It's part of the academic institution. It's called Consultative Proteomics. Um, it's, you have to pay out of pocket, unfortunately, for it. But they'll produce this masterful analysis of the tumor that's a deep interrogation of kind of what makes the tumor tick based on looking at the proteins and seeing and looking for these growth pathways. And one of the things that I've collaborated with them on is to begin to do testing for these immune factors. So, and they, they, they're really excited by this whole idea, but it turns out that if you have a, a tumor that the, your own lymphocytes don't recognize, uh, what, what you'll find is in the tumor, there, there won't be what are called tumor-infiltrating lymphocytes. They haven't found their way in there to try and deal with the tumor. Those tumors uh, are far more dangerous. And so if you analyze a tumor and look for tumor-infiltrating lymphocytes and they're there, it's a completely different tumor. So I I was just at these uh, meetings in Philadelphia in mid-April, and Edith Perez from Mayo Clinic was presenting on her analysis of tumor-infiltrating lymphocytes in breast cancer. And she was literally talking about you get till cells in these breast cancers, I mean, they don't become metastatic. I mean, by and large. This is what, what, where she was going with this. And she was beginning to say, look, we really need to be doing these immune prognostications of tumors, which hasn't been done before. Uh, a guy named George Kukos was doing this with ovarian cancer at University of Pennsylvania even 10, 12 years ago, published in New England Journal of Medicine. 
it was the same finding. If you destratify risk of recurrence for ovarian cancer solely on the basis of the sample that the surgery is done for the ovarian cancer, you just look for tumor infiltrating lymphocytes. If they're there, the prognosis is so much better. It's also found that then these immune therapies, you need to have the tumor infiltrating lymphocytes there or else usually they're not going to work as well. And so finally, now the field is beginning to look at what can we do to stimulate the immune system to actually get in there and recognize the tumor. And ultimately, this, of course, is the upstream question of, of how did the cancer, how was the cancer allowed to start in the first place and, and maintain itself? Why didn't the immune system get in there, the person's own lymphocytes, notice the tumor and eradicate it? And so for those of us interested in immunotherapy, uh, cancer immunology, and I was drawn to that, oddly, due to my father and Carl Simonton and these white blood cells that are, you're going to basically visualize them going to the tumor. And they were talking about tumor infiltrating lymphocytes, even then. And I've watched as these folks in that field were pushed further and further out from cancer research, mainstream oncology, that all over the last 30, 40 years has been about, as most people know, drugs, chemotherapy. Um, and immune therapy was just viewed as sort of, oh, wouldn't that be nice? And finally now, at the last two to three years of major cancer meetings, the immunotherapists have <laughs> been invited onto the stage in these plenary sessions and they can't help but crow. And they stand up there and they show their data. They show these amazing responses of people who go into remission. They stay in remission. And they say to the chemotherapists who mainly are in the audience, they say, look, our treatments, they're not as toxic. And they're durable. They work longer. And this is just at the ground floor of this. So there's this wild, wild experiment going on now. And there are clinical trials popping up all over the place. You won't find them listed in clinicaltrials.gov because they're so popular. You can fill them really just with any given doctor at that institution's patients. And they all patients all want into these trials. And what they're doing is they're combining everything with these new immunotherapies, the PD-1 therapies. So they're combining um, chemotherapy, they're about targeted therapy, they're combining stereotactic radiosurgery. Um, and then most interestingly, all these immune therapies that previously hadn't worked so well, they're combining those. So it might be IL-2. It might be these things that thymus and things that extracts that would um, stimulate the immune system combined with this other therapy. You're listening to part one of a two-part conversation with Mark Renneker, MD, and Michael Lerner. And... The PD-1 therapies, two of them have been approved so far. Um, one called Optivo, which is uh, made by Bristol-Myers, and the other called uh, Keytruda, which is made by Merck. And um, they've been approved only for second-line therapy for melanoma and one of them for uh, type of lung cancer. But once they got approved, boy, it was just interesting to watch the everybody would look at it and go, well, wait, now I can prescribe this off-label. Mm -hmm. um, insurance won't cover it, but for someone who might not fit any of the trials, 
they could try this. And so uh, there's, it's happening. I mean, oncologists who, um, both within institutions and not even at, say, at Harvard, uh, Dana-Farber, I had a patient who was at high risk for recurrence for esophageal cancer. And I said, look, I think this PD-1 therapy would be great for you. Ask your oncologist if he wouldn't agree. And the oncologist said, you know, I think you're right. This would be for adjuvant therapy, which is so far in the future in terms of clinical trials, it won't get there probably for five years in the clinical trials process. But again, the toxicity not so high with this drug, the chance that it could prevent this cancer from coming back. And this guy went to bat and uh, to the powers to be, as it were, because if you're an institution, you're not allowed to do off-label prescribing. You're just not. I mean, you're not supposed to. You need to go before the institutional review board, seek permission, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, can a community oncologist do off-label testing more easily? Oh yeah, they can. I mean, the, the sort of the power of the AMA is that physicians still have that uh, power. Power right. that they can prescribe whatever they want. So really. this would be an instance where having a community oncologist on your team, even if you're seeing somebody in an academic center, if you discovered that there was an off-label opportunity that couldn't be done through the academic center, you might work with a community oncologist. And I have several community oncologist friends who, you know, under the table, as it were, are doing this with patients. Uh, The other wild thing about it all is... uh, Again, it's sort of in, in this write-up, but if you carefully read the papers on these new PD-1 therapies, there's one just published early in May on metastatic kidney cancer. They studied a dose range of, say, from 0.3 milligrams per kilogram to 10 milligrams per kilogram, so about a 30-fold difference in dose. <clears throat> and the results were equally good for the 0.3 milligram mm-hmm. as for the 10 milligram, mm-hmm. which for the bottom liners, you know, the bean counters at the drug company, I'm sure they tried to block publication of this even <laughs> because they were already sharpening up to charge about 150 grand a year for this new drug at 10 milligram per kilogram. Mm-hmm. These studies basically indicate that the companies haven't found the lowest dose to where it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And isn't that true in chemotherapies also? I have been told that there are oncologists who would like to prescribe lower doses of chemotherapy to specific patients and come under all kinds of pressure from drug reps to do that uh, because, you know, they say this is the standard and we're going to get after you if you don't do that. You know, fortunately what happened, uh, Judith Folkman at Harvard, who had the idea of angiogenic therapy, he was the first one who talked about you need a cocktail. Right. And it was from the same model of HIV mm-hmm. that worked, which is you need multiple angles on this, the cancer cell in this case. To really hobble it, you can't just have a single line approach. So in chemotherapy in general, anytime you have three, four drugs together, you have to lower the dose of all of them. Mm-hmm. So Folkman made it acceptable uh-huh. to do multiple drugs at low dose, Uh and it came to be called low-dose metronomic therapy. Mm. And what they showed was that it wasn't actually superior to high dose, 
But for the patient who didn't have the toxicity, and if they had equal results, mm -hmm. that was pretty exciting. Mm -hmm. So interestingly, there's a group doing this with, mainly with ovarian cancer in uh, outside New York City in the Bronx, uh, a guy named Bruckner. And he's been combining five, six, seven chemotherapies for multiple kinds of cancer beyond just ovarian at very low doses. And again, this would be almost heresy. You'd think that they'd put you in jail for this because it's, it's not proven in clinical trials. It's, mm. it's not, uh, uh, you know, the person would argue, gee, now you're going to create resistance to all of those drugs and then you won't have any arrows in your quiver to treat them, you know, for multiple lines of therapy down the road. But the results that he's reporting are really amazing. And so, you know, I have patients, I have had a psychiatrist patient from here who had just had kind of reached the end with standard therapy, chemotherapy from every gynecological oncologist in the Bay Area. And I began to talk about Howard Bruckner's work, and she said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go. It worked. It was, it, you know, it, and again, it's, it isn't so unusual, really. And, and uh, I think that it's actually getting easier now to do that in, in the field of oncology, if only because uh, there's so many different ways to treat most cancers now. Mm -hmm. And I think in that sense, I think variance is, um, is more acceptable. Mm -hmm. Let me bring you back, because I know we want to get through it, to, yeah. uh, to our list. So you've talked about the molecular and genomic testing, uh, uh, individualized chemotherapy, live cell chemosensitivity testing. Yeah, this is still not done nearly as much as one would hope. Um, UCSF, so interestingly, in the GYM oncology department there, we're doing chemosensitivity testing way back into the 90s and for any number of years. But if you were to ask in the breast department or in the prostate or the brain tumor department, they would say, oh, no, we don't believe in this. You know, this is this, no, no. No, you know, accredited university would do this. Um, what you do find then are patients often having to initiate this. It takes some forethought where you're going to have a surgery done to make the arrangements to get the surgeon to agree to send off a piece of the live tumor. There's multiple labs. I've listed them here. And they do the very obvious thing, which is to see uh, what drugs will kill those tumor cells and what drugs will not. And it turns out these assays are about 90% accurate at telling you what will not work, which would save false starts and unnecessary toxicity. Uh, and then they're, they're getting better and better at picking, as it were, picking the horses that are going to win the race. It's a lot of, it's like handicapping, you know, before the race. Uh, so I actually find these enormously useful. And you mentioned Robert Nagorny's Rational Therapeutics and Larry Weisenthal's uh, lab yeah. as two of the ones. And as you mentioned, there's, there's a whole history of this uh, individualized chemotherapy live cell chemosensitivity testing where early on it was exciting in mainstream medicine. And then mainstream medicine abandoned it, basically. And so now it remains something that patients really have to advocate for with most uh, oncologists to get, to get this done. 
true. And what's what's taken its place as sort of the new it thing mm-hmm. is genomic profiling. Mm-hmm. And genomic profiling still to this day is not as well validated in prospective studies as to being able to pick the winners, as it were, mm-hmm. as, for instance, uh, chemosensitivity testing. Mm-hmm. So what about protecting future options, cryopreserving tumor? Yeah, cryopreserving. So especially given this sort of mass interest in immunotherapy, um, many immunotherapies depend on having live tumor cells to create a vaccine or to sort of generate a more effective immunotherapy. And to do that, you need some of the tumor, which, uh, let's say, gratefully, all of it was removed in a surgery. But at that point, let's say you wanted to do an immunotherapy and you didn't have the tumor cells, you can't use that which was put in, in wax from the original specimen. You need live cells. So if you have a piece that had been cryopreserved, you can use that to generate these kind of new therapies. Um, there's a company that I love down in uh, Austin, Texas, named Incel, and this wonderful biologist that runs it. And she gets very involved in sort of lovingly receiving these samples and worrying over them and making sure that they grow and, and that they're happy and, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've had her now be willing to then do sort of quasi-experimental where I have some compound that is some underground herbal compound from wherever, and we're trying to figure out if this might be useful. So she'll set up these experiments for me and say, okay, we'll mix this with mix app and we'll combine it with this and, and sort of give some, some sort of signal or guidance to, to sort of help navigate going forward. Um, those are the kind of people that I look for. Nagorni, this one in, in Texas, uh, who, who really are doing it out of a curiosity, mm-hmm. a passion. They're not trying to sort of build an assembly line that, you know, that they're going to be able to get the venture capital that's going to support this effort because it's going to generate a certain profit per mm-hmm. year. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, these are boutique, if you will, kind of sort of cancer profiling methods. But uh, I think that's the way medicine best proceeds. Mm-hmm. The next set of sections, I just notice about them. You have, number one, additional imaging of different kinds. Number two, additional lab testing, immunological. Number three, additional lab testing, tumor markers, circulating tumor cells, and liquid biopsies. Number four, additional testing, terrain panels, and functional testing. So this represents four different fields in which additional testing may be done. Is there a way to... And again, the the tough thing here is all of these are available. Mm -hmm. And how do you, as it were, twist the arm of Mm -hmm. your oncologist to be willing to order this stuff or find another doctor willing to? Um, At this point, there's only a handful of these new MRI PET Mm -hmm. machines but these are going to be amazing. These, these are game changers because you're now, you're now going to be able to, you know, PET looks at the metabolism of cells. They can tell you what uh, looks like cancer, but it, inflammation fools it. So if you have an immunotherapy that's working, mm-hmm. you can actually see an increased PET 
value that will look positive. Mm-hmm. The uh, uh, it's very hard to tell it apart. Mm-hmm. And with these new MRI PET machines, you're going to be able to sort out in terms of what looks like a, a growth or a recurrence. It may just be that you finally have sort of hit the combination where the immune system is now working and that even though the tumor might look bigger, it's actually because of normal inflammatory immunological response. Some these machines are going to come into play. There's one now in, in Cleveland, and so I've been uh, referring patients there. On the, on the issue of liquid biopsy, this is this fascinating element where simple uh, blood draw Turns out that there's pieces of tumor DNA in the blood for most cancers. And um, so what you can now do is recover that. And let's say you're wondering about HER2 status or EGFR status for these molecular markers. You can do that testing on the blood. Mm-hmm. And so this is, this is significant. Um, they're still figuring out how to do it. but um, And then also for folks who may have to pace for this out of pocket as some of this goes. It is worth watching, I think, where Theranos goes. I don't know if you know Theranos, this incredible company that that was started. But basically, a drop of blood, they can do every blood test that any doctor would routinely order. Wow. And um, so it's going to, and so let's say for a complete blood count, CBC or a metabolic panel, the cost of that is less than $5. Wow. So what this will do is it's going to effectively (laughs) save the Affordable Care Act because I think the laboratory industry is just going to vanish, Mm -hmm. literally vanish. Mm -hmm. This cumbersome thing of drawing all those tubes of blood Mm -hmm. and the special handling of them and transport of them, and most of them are sort of bunched and sent to another city, that's all going to end. Wow. So Theranos now, they're making arrangements with Walgreens mm. where, where they'll, they'll get the drop of blood. And knowing the way this kind of intrusive technology works, it'll, this will be what 23andMe was trying to do, which was gene testing direct to the patient or the public. This means that complex blood testing is going to probably become something that a patient or, excuse me, any person can just order and just pay out of pocket. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Which is, and this whole movement toward direct relationships yeah. between the patient and the technology is, is a growing thing in any case. I right. Mean, genomics 23 and me, as you mentioned. And then on the, on the issue of other paneling, uh, our colleague Keith Block has really been the pioneer in this, but um, Keith has always wanted to use then laboratory testing to look at say, the vitamin levels, the antioxidant levels, the micronutrient levels, the sort of markers of coagulation and clotting, the markers of uh, the immune system, um, as a way of then more rationally tailoring, giving um, supplements, nutraceuticals, sometimes at high dose, but really using them as medicine. And what you won't find in the conventional oncology field, you won't find much support for this idea of using supplements um, as as a way to basically affect the behavior of a tumor. Mm -hmm. 
yes, it may make you feel better or help with, you know, fatigue, this kind of thing. But uh, folks like Keith, um, as you know, have sort of been pushing that boundary. Um, and he and I will do cases where, you know, we'll take omega-3 fatty acid doses up to 10, 15 grams mm-hmm. and actually just see tumor markers go down in direct response to mm-hmm. pushing this, taking uh, curcumin to high dose, mm-hmm. um, taking melatonin to high dose, mm-hmm. and actually see, I mean, just in terms of just like you would with a, a, a true sort of chemotherapy, um, biological response. You know, this... this what we are talking about now really demonstrates, I just want to do this in a brief, the, the willingness that you have to go out in surfing conditions that almost nobody else is willing to even imagine. You're also willing to go into this field of medicine where the sanctions and the social pressures to do things according to certain regulations are pretty strong. And you really are willing to just, as is Keith and others, to just look at what the evidence is showing you and go there in the service of the patient. I mean, when you're just talking about taking omega-3 way up or curcumin way up and watching tumor markers drop, to me, there's the, the metaphor that you began with that, you know, that the big waves in the ocean and the big waves that you face when you're advocating on behalf of a patient, there really is a similarity. There's a willingness to work under conditions of peril in service of a patient, regardless of the fact that a lot of people would sanction that. Uh, well, you know, my, my orientation has always been not to the profession. Right. It's been to the patient. Right. And so I, as an advocate, as it were, I take up the patient's position. Right. And I write in here this handout of times when what the patient wants to do may actually not be something I even agree with. Mm-hmm. But that my role is to support them in what they want to do mm-hmm. and help them figure out how to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll have patients who uh, are just flat out refusing treatment, even basic surgery, which I know is probably going to cure them literally of this if they would, but for whatever reason, they uh, don't want to have this operation. Mm-hmm. And so then my job is to help them figure out, so what else can we do that maybe might shore things up or mm-hmm. sort of try to be equal to that? Uh, when you take that position, it changes everything. And we were chatting earlier about sort of the theme of, of what I hoped to begin to present or explore with this group today was that each of us does advocacy with each other all the time. That, you know, it's, it's, I think it's, it's inbred into how we care for each other where we're wanting to help a person uh, we care about who isn't is suffering from something or not doing well or not sure what to do. And the monolith of the field of medicine really brings this out because everyone shares, I think, a mutual sense of powerlessness in the face of these 
august individuals and institutions. Um, and so, you know, where I come from originally, you know, my mentors, Ivan Illich, I mean, real uh, Neil Postman, real subversive people who basically, you know, see these institutions and, 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 and sort of the corruption that it creates. Um, so advocacy for me is almost synonymous with um, being uh, a subversive, literally, uh, for better or for worse. But it, it also then, it does uh, lend itself to, um, I'm not going to say being a street fighter, but as it were, seeing a big wave uh, and saying, no, no, I can go out and I can do this. Um, they, they don't have anything on me. So, uh, you know, in almost every field I've studied, politics, economics, uh, health, uh, medicine, whatever it is, the, the standard model of the truth almost always turns out not to be so. All right. You know, I mean, it's just so interesting across a whole bunch of different fields. It just turns out not to be so. What's much more complicated is to figure out what is so, you know? Right. In other words, it's not that hard to deconstruct yeah. what's wrong. But what's really hard is that once you've deconstructed what's wrong, finding the truth, for example, in cancer medicine, is a much more complicated thing than just than the deconstruction of, of everything that's wrong. I'll tell you what, the truth for me mm-hmm. is more often revealed by the patient's intuition mm-hmm. about what to do. Yes. So uh, what I often do in a first appointment is to try to get a sense from the person if they have some idea about maybe what might have led to this mm-hmm. disease or this cancer. Um, but then, more importantly, what to do about it. Mm-hmm. And so often they've had this sort of gut hunch mm-hmm. of some direction to go in that for whatever reason they just haven't had much support for, mm-hmm. often from their family, um, because somehow this is just a little, making them a little nervous that they want to go do something different or some other therapy. And so it, um, once you tune your ears to that, um, it, more often that's what sounds true. And isn't that a fascinating thing? You've been listening to part one of a two-part conversation with Mark Renneker, MD, and Michael Lerner. Thank you for joining us at the New School at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio engineer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Chiani. Please visit our website at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on Facebook.